Human Immortality by William James. This is the Harvard Ingersoll Lecture from 1897. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Recording by Josh Middledorf. Human Immortality. It's a matter, unfortunately, too often seen in history to call for much remark that when a living want of mankind has got itself officially protected and organized in an institution, one of the things which the institution most surely tends to do is to stand in the way of the natural gratification of the want itself. We see this in laws and courts of justice. We see it in ecclesiasticisms. We see it in academies of the fine arts, in the medical and other professions, and we even see it in the universities themselves. Too often do the placeholders of such institutions frustrate the spiritual purpose to which they were appointed to minister by the technical light which soon becomes the only light in which they seem able to see the purpose and the narrow way which is the only way in which they can work in its service. I confess that I thought of this for a moment when the corporation of our university invited me last spring to give the Ingersoll lecture. Immortality is one of the great spiritual needs of man. The churches have constituted themselves the official guardians of that need, with the result that some of them actually pretend to accord or to withhold it from the individual by their conventional sacraments withhold it at least in the only shape in which it can be an object of desire. And now comes the Ingersoll lectureship. Its high-minded founder evidently thought that our university might serve the cause he had at heart more liberally than the churches do, because a university is a body so much less trammeled by traditions and by impossibilities in regard to choice of persons. And yet, one of the first things which the university does is to appoint a man like him who stands before you, certainly not because he is known as an enthusiastic messenger of the future life, burning to publish the good tidings to his fellow men, but apparently because he is a university official. Thinking in this way, I felt at first as if I ought to decline the appointment. The whole subject of immortal life has its prime roots in personal feeling, I have to confess that my own personal feeling about immortality has never been of the keenest order, and that, among the problems that give my mind solicitude, this one does not take the very foremost place. Yet there are individuals with a real passion for this matter, men and women for whom a life hereafter is a pungent craving, and the thought of it an obsession and in whom keenness of interest has bred an insight into the relations of the subject that no one less penetrated with the mystery of it can attain. Some of these people are known to me. They are not official personages. They do not speak as the scribes, but as having direct authority. And surely, if anywhere a prophet clad in goatskins and not a uniformed official should be called to give inspiration, assurance, and instruction, it would seem to be here on such a theme. Office, at any rate, ought not to displace spiritual calling. And yet, in spite of these reflections, which I could not avoid making, I am here tonight, all uninspired and official as I am. I am sure that prophets clad in goatskins, or, to speak less figuratively, laymen inspired with emotional messages on the subject, will often enough be invited by our corporation to give the Ingersoll lectures hereafter. 
Meanwhile, all negative and deadening as the remarks of a mere professional psychologist like myself may be in comparison with the vital lessons they will give, I am sure upon mature reflection that those who have the responsibility of administering the Ingersoll Foundation are in duty bound to let the most various kinds of official personages take their turn as well. The subject is really an enormous subject. At the back of Mr. Alger's Critical History of the Doctrine of a Future Life, there is a bibliography of more than 5,000 titles of books in which it is treated. Our corporation cannot think only of this signal lecture. It must think of the whole series of lectures in futuro. Single lectures, however emotionally inspired and inspiring they may be, will not be enough. The lectures must remedy each other so that out of the series there shall emerge a collective literature worthy of the importance of the theme. This unquestionably was what the founder had in mind. He wished the subject to be turned over in all possible aspect so that at last results might ponderate harmoniously in the true direction. Seen in this long perspective, the Ingersoll Foundation calls for nothing so much as for minute division of labor. Orators must take their turn, and prophets, but narrow specialists as well. Theologians of every creed, metaphysicians, anthropologists, and psychologists must alternate with biologists and physicists and psychical researchers, even with mathematicians, if any one of them presents a grain of truth seen from his point of view that will remain and accrete with truths brought by the others, his will have been a good appointment. In the hour that lies before us, then, I shall seek to justify my appointment by offering what seem to me two such grains of truth, two points well fitted, if I am not mistaken, to combine with anything that other lectures may bring. These points are both of them in the nature of replies to objections, to difficulties which our modern culture finds in the old notion of life hereafter, difficulties that I am sure rob the notion of much of its old power to draw belief in the scientifically cultivated circles to which this audience belongs. The first of these difficulties is relative to the absolute dependence of our spiritual life as we know it here upon the brain. One hears not only physiologists, but numbers of laymen who read the popular science books and magazines saying all about us, how can we believe in life hereafter when science has once for all attained to proving, beyond possibility of escape, that our inner life is a function of that famous material, the so-called gray matter of our cerebral convolutions? How can the functions possibly persist after its organ has undergone decay? Thus, physiological psychology is what is supposed to bar the way to the old faith, and it is now as a physiological psychologist that I ask you to look at the question with me a little more closely. It is indeed true that physiological science has come to the conclusion cited, and we must confess that in so doing she has only carried out a little further the common belief of mankind. Everyone knows that arrests of brain development occasion imbecility that blows on the head abolish memory or consciousness, and the brain stimulants and poisons change the quality of our ideas. The anatomists, physiologists, and pathologists have only shown this generally admitted fact of a dependence to be detailed and minute. 
What the laboratories and hospitals have lately been teaching us is not only that thought in general is one of the brain's functions, but that the various special forms of thinking are functions of special portions of the brain. When we are thinking of things seen, it is the occipital convolutions that are active. When of things heard, it is a certain portion of our temporal lobes. When of things to be spoken, it is one of our frontal convolutions. Professor Fleschzig of Leipzig, who perhaps more than anyone may claim to have made the subject his own, considers that in other special convolutions those processes of association go on, which permit the more abstract processes of thought to take place. I could easily show you these regions if I had here a picture of the brain. Moreover, the diminished or exaggerated association of what this author calls the Korpofühlspar with the other regions accounts, according to him, for the complexion of our emotional life and eventually decides whether one shall be a callous brute or criminal, an unbalanced sentimentalist, or a character accessible to feeling and yet well poised. Such special opinions may have to be corrected, yet so firmly established to the main positions worked out by the anatomists, physiologists, and pathologists of the brain appear that the youth of our medical schools are everywhere taught unhesitatingly to believe them. The assurance that observation will go on to establish them ever more and more minutely is the inspirer of all contemporary research, and almost any of our young psychologists will tell you that only a few belated scholastics or possibly some crack-brained theosophist or psychical researcher can be found holding back and still talking as if mental phenomena might exist as independent variables in the world. For the purposes of my argument now, I wish to adopt this general doctrine as if it were established absolutely with no possibility of restriction. During this hour, I wish you to accept it as a postulate, whether you think it incontrovertibly established or not. So I beg you to agree with me today in subscribing to the great psychophysiological formula. Thought is a function of the brain. The question is, then, does this doctrine logically compel us to disbelieve in immortality? Ought it to force every truly consistent thinker to sacrifice his hopes of an hereafter? to what he takes to be his duty of accepting all the consequences of a scientific truth. Most persons imbued with what one may call the puritanism of science may feel themselves bound to answer this question with a yes. If any medically or psychologically bred young scientist feels otherwise, it is probably in consequence of that incoherency of mind of which the majority of mankind happily enjoy the privilege. At one hour, scientists, at another, they are Christians or common men, with the will to live burning hot in their breasts, and holding thus to two ends of the chain, they are careless of their intermediate connection. But the more radical and uncompromising disciple of science makes the sacrifice, and, sorrowfully or not, according to his temperament, submits to giving up his hopes of heaven. This, then, is the objection to immortality, and the next thing in order for me is to try to make plain to you why I believe that it has in strict logic no deterrent power. I must show you that the fatal consequence is not coercive, as is commonly imagined, and that 
even though our soul's life, as here below it is revealed to us, may be in literal strictness the function of a brain that perishes, yet it is not at all impossible, but on the contrary quite possible, that the life may still continue when the brain itself is dead. The supposed impossibility of its continuing comes from too superficial a look at the admitted fact of functional dependence. The moment we inquire more closely into the notion of functional dependence and ask ourselves, for example, how many kinds of functional dependence there may be, we immediately perceive that there is one kind at least that does not exclude a life hereafter at all. The fatal conclusion of the physiologist flows from his assuming offhand another kind of functional dependence and treating it as the only imaginable kind. When the physiologist who thinks that his science cuts off all hope of immortality pronounces this phrase, thought is a function of the brain. He thinks of the matter just as he thinks when he says, steam is a function of the tea kettle, light is a function of the electric circuit, power is a function of the moving waterfall, in these latter cases, the several material objects have the function of inwardly creating or engendering their effects, and the function must be called productive function. Just so, he thinks, it must be with the brain, engendering consciousness in its interior, much as it engenders cholesterol and creatine and carbonic acid, its relation to our soul's life must also be called productive function. Of course, if such production be the function, then when the organ perishes, since the production can no longer continue, the soul must surely die. Such a conclusion as this is indeed inevitable from that particular conception of the facts. But in the world of physical nature, productive function of this sort is not the only kind of function with which we are familiar. We have also releasing or permissive function, and we have transmissive function. The trigger of a crossbow has a releasing function. It removes the obstacle that holds the string and lets the bow fly back to its natural shape. So when the hammer falls upon a detonating compound, by knocking out the inner molecular obstructions, it lets the constituent gases resume their normal bulk and so permits the explosion to take place. In the case of a colored glass, a prism, or a refracting lens, we have transmissive function, the energy of light, no matter how produced, is by the glass sifted and limited in color, and by the lens or prism determined to a certain path and shape. Similarly, the keys of an organ have only a transmissive function. They open successively the various pipes and let the wind in the air chest escape in various ways. The voices of the various pipes are constituted by the columns of air trembling as they emerge. But the air is not engendered in the organ. The organ proper, as distinguished from its air chest, is only an apparatus for letting portions of it loose upon the world in these peculiarly limited shapes. My thesis now is this, that when we think of the law that thought is a function of the brain, we are not required to think of productive function only. We are entitled also to consider permissive or transmissive function, and this the ordinary psychophysiologist leaves out of his account. Suppose, for example, that the whole universe of material things, the furniture of earth and choir of heaven, should turn out to be a mere surface veil of phenomena hiding and keeping back the world of genuine realities. Such a supposition is foreign neither to common sense nor to philosophy. 
common sense believes in realities behind the veil even too superstitiously and idealistic philosophy declares the whole world of natural experience as we get it to be but a time mask shattering or refracting the one infinite thought which is the sole reality into those millions of finite streams of consciousness known to us as our private selves life like a dome of many-coloured glass stains the white radiance of eternity p b shelley suppose now that this were really so and suppose moreover that the dome opaque enough at all times to the full supersolar blaze could at certain times and places grow less so and let certain beams pierce through into this sublunary world these beams would be so many finite rays so to speak of consciousness and they would vary in quantity and quality as the opacity varied in degree only at particular times and places would it seem that as a matter of fact the veil of nature can grow thin and rupturable enough for such effects to occur but in those places gleams however finite and unsatisfying of the absolute life of the universe are from time to time vouchsafed glows of feeling glimpses of insight and streams of knowledge and perception float into our finite world admit now that our brains are such thin and half-transparent places in the veil what will happen why as the white radiance comes through the dome with all sorts of staining and distortion imprinted on it by the glass or as the air now comes through my glottis determined and limited in its force and quality of its vibrations by the peculiarities of these vocal cords which form its gate of egress and shape it into my personal voice even so the genuine matter of reality the life of souls as it is in its fullness will break through our several brains into this world in all sorts of restricted forms and with all the imperfections and queernesses that characterize our finite individualities here below according to the state in which the brain finds itself the barrier of its obstructiveness may also be supposed to rise or fall it sinks so low when the brain is in full activity that a comparative flood of spiritual energy pours over at other times only such occasional waves of thought as heavy sleep permits get by and when finally a brain stops acting altogether or decays that special stream of consciousness which it subserved will vanish entirely from this natural world but the sphere of being that supplied the consciousness would still be intact and in that more real world with which even whilst here it was continuous the consciousness might in ways unknown to us continue still you see that on all these suppositions our soul's life as we here know it would none the less in literal strictness be the function of the brain the brain would be the independent variable the mind would vary depending on it but such dependence on the brain for this natural life would in no wise make immortal life impossible it might be quite compatible with supernatural life behind the veil hereafter as i said then the fatal consequence is not coercive the conclusion which materialism draws being due solely to its one-sided way of taking the word function and whether we care or not for immortality in itself we ought as mere critics doing police duty among the vagaries of mankind to insist on the illogicality of a denial based on the flat ignoring of a palpable alternative 
how much more ought we to insist as lovers of truth when the denial is that of such a vital hope for mankind in strict logic then the fangs of cerebralistic materialism are drawn my words ought consequently already to exert a releasing function on your hopes you may believe henceforward whether you care to profit by the permission or not but as this is a very abstract argument i think it will help its effect to say a word or two about the more concrete conditions of the case all abstract hypotheses sound unreal and the abstract notion that our brains are colored lenses in the wall of nature admitting light from the suprasolar source but at the same time tinging and restricting it has a thoroughly fantastic sound what is it you may ask but a foolish metaphor and how can such a function be imagined isn't the common materialistic notion vastly simpler is not consciousness really more comparable to a sort of steam or perfume or electricity or nerve glow generated on the spot in its own peculiar vessel is it not more rigorously scientific to treat the brain's function as a function of production the immediate reply is that if we are talking of science positively understood function can mean nothing more than bare concomitant variation when the brain activities change in one way consciousness changes in another when the currents pour through the occipital lobes consciousness sees things when through the lower frontal region consciousness says things to itself when they stop she goes to sleep etc in strict science we can only write down the bare fact of concomitance and all talk about either production or transmission as the mode of taking place is pure superadded hypothesis and metaphysical hypothesis at that for we can frame no more notion of the details on the one alternative than on the other as for any indication of the exact process either of transmission or production and science confesses her imagination to be bankrupt she has so far not the least glimmer of a conjecture or suggestion not even a bad verbal metaphor or pun to offer. Ignoramus ignorabimus. We don't know what we don't know. Is what most physiologists, in the words of one of the number, will say here, the production of such things as consciousness in the brain, they will reply with the late Berlin professor of physiology, is the absolute world enigma, something so paradoxical and abnormal as to be a stumbling block to nature and almost a self-contradiction into the mode of production of steam in a tea kettle we have conjectural insight for the terms that change are physically homogeneous one with another and we can easily imagine the case to consist of nothing but alterations of molecular motion but in the production of consciousness by the brain the terms are heterogeneous natures altogether and as far as our understanding goes it is as great a miracle as if we said thought is spontaneously generated or created out of nothing the theory of production is therefore not a jot more simple or credible in itself than any other conceivable theory it is only a little more popular all that one need do therefore if the ordinary materialist should challenge one to explain how the brain can be an organ for limiting and determining to a certain form of consciousness elsewhere produced is to retort with a tu quoqua asking him in turn to explain how it can be an organ for producing consciousness out of whole cloth for polemic purposes the theories are thus exactly on a par 
but if we consider the theory of transmission in a wider way, we see that it has certain positive superiorities, quite apart from its connection with the immortality question. Just how the process of transmission may be carried on is indeed unimaginable, but the outer relations, so to speak, of the process encourage our belief. Consciousness in this process does not have to be generated de nouveau in a vast number of places. It exists already, behind the scenes, coeval with the world. The transmission theory not only avoids in this way multiplying miracles, but it puts itself in touch with general idealistic philosophy better than the production theory does. It should always be reckoned a good thing when science and philosophy thus meet. It puts itself also in touch with the conception of a threshold, a word with which, since Fechner wrote the book called Psychophysique, the so-called new psychology has rung. Fechner imagines as the condition of consciousness a certain kind of psychophysical movement, as he terms it. Before consciousness can come, a certain degree of activity in the movement must be reached. This requisite degree is called the threshold, but the height of the threshold varies under different circumstances. It may rise or fall. When it falls, as in states of great lucidity, we grow conscious of things of which we should be unconscious at other times. And when it rises, as in drowsiness, consciousness sinks in amount. This rising and lowering of a psychophysical threshold exactly conforms to our notion of a permanent obstruction to the transmission of consciousness, which obstruction may, in our brains, grow alternately greater or less. The transmission theory also puts itself in touch with a whole class of experiences that are with difficulty explained by the production theory. I refer to those obscure and exceptional phenomena reported at all times throughout human history, which the psychical researchers with Mr. Frederick Myers at their head are doing so much to rehabilitate. Such phenomena, namely as religious conversions, providential leadings in answer to prayer, instantaneous healings, premonitions, apparitions at times of death, clairvoyant visions or impressions, and the whole range of mediumistic capacities, to say nothing of still more exceptional and incomprehensible things. If all our human thought be a function of the brain, then, of course, if any of these things are facts, and to my own mind some of them are facts, we may not suppose that they can occur without preliminary brain action. But the ordinary production theory of consciousness is knit up with a peculiar notion of how brain action can occur, that notion being that all brain action, without exception, is due to a prior action, immediate or remote, of the bodily sense organs on the brain. Such action makes the brain produce sensations and mental images, and out of the sensations and images the higher forms of thought and knowledge, in their turn, are framed. As transmissionists, we also must admit this to be the condition of all our usual thought. Sense action is what lowers the brain barrier. My voice and aspect, for instance, strike upon your ears and eyes, your brain thereupon becomes more pervious, and an awareness on your part of what I say and who I am slips into this world from the world beyond the veil. But in the mysterious phenomena to which I allude, it is often hard to see where the sense organs can come in. A medium, for example, will show knowledge of his sitter's private affairs, which it seems impossible he should have acquired through sight or hearing, or inference therefrom. Or you will have an apparition of someone who is now dying hundreds of miles away. On the production theory, 
one does not see from what sensation such odd bits of knowledge are produced. On the transmission theory, they don't have to be produced, they exist ready-made in the transcendental world, and all that is needed is an abnormal lowering of the brain threshold to let them through. In cases of conversion, in providential leadings, sudden mental healings, etc., it seems to the subjects themselves of the experiences as if a power from without, quite different from the ordinary action of their senses, or of the sense-led mind, came into their life, as if the latter suddenly opened into the greater life in which it has its source. The word influx, used in Swedenborgian circles, well describes this impression of new insight or new willingness sweeping over us like a tide. All such experiences, quite paradoxical and meaningless on the production theory, fall very naturally into place on the other theory. We need only suppose the continuity of our consciousness with a mother sea to allow for exceptional waves occasionally pouring over the dam. Of course, the causes of these odd lowerings of the brain's threshold still remain a mystery on any terms. Add then this advantage to the transmission theory, an advantage which I am well aware that some of you will not rate very high, and also add the advantage of not conflicting with a life hereafter, and I hope you will agree with me that it has many points of superiority to the more familiar theory. It is a theory which, in the history of opinion on such matters, has never been wholly left out of account, though never developed at any great length. In the great orthodox philosophic tradition, the body is treated as an essential condition to the soul's life in this world of sense, but after death, it is said, the soul is set free and becomes a purely intellectual and non-appetitive being. Kant expresses this idea in terms that come singularly close to those of our transmission theory. The death of the body, he says, may indeed be the end of the sensational use of our mind, but only the beginning of the intellectual use. The body, he continues, would thus be not the cause of our thinking, but merely a condition restrictive thereof, and although essential to our sensuous and animal consciousness, it may be regarded as an impeder of our pure spiritual life. And in a recent book of great suggestiveness and power, less well known as yet than it deserves, the transmission theory is defended at some length. I mean, Riddles of the Sphinx, by Mr. F. C. S. Schiller of Oxford, late of Cornell University. But still, you will ask, in what positive way does this theory help us to realize our immortality in imagination? What we all wish to keep is just these individual restrictions, these self-same tendencies and peculiarities that define us to ourselves and others, and constitutes our identity, so-called, our finiteness and limitations, seem to be our personal essence, and when the finiting organ drops away and our several spirits revert to their original source and resume their unrestricted condition, will they then be anything like those sweet streams of feelings which we know and which even now our brains are sifting out from the great reservoir for our enjoyment here below? Such questions are truly living questions, and surely they must be seriously discussed by future lecturers upon this Ingersoll Foundation. I hope, for my part, that more than one such lecturer will penetratingly discuss the conditions of our immortality, and tell us how much we may lose and how much we may possibly gain if its finiting outlines should be changed. 
If all determination is negation, as the philosophers say, it may well prove that the loss of some of this particular determinations which the brain imposes would not appear a matter for such absolute regret. But into these higher and more transcendental matters I refuse to enter upon this occasion, and I proceed during the remainder of this hour to treat of my second point. Fragmentary and negative it is, as my first one has been, yet between them they do give to our belief in immortality a freer wing. My second point is relative to the incredible and intolerable number of beings which, with our modern imagination, we must believe to be immortal, if immortality be true. I cannot but suspect that this, too, is a stumbling block to many of my present audience, and it is stumbling block which I should thoroughly like to clear away. It is, I fancy, a stumbling block of altogether modern origin, due to the strain upon the quantitative imagination which recent scientific theories and the moral feelings consequent upon them have brought in their train. For our ancestors, the world was a small and, compared with our modern sense of it, a comparatively snug affair. Six thousand years at most it had lasted. In its history, a few particular human heroes, kings, ecclesiarchs and saints stood forth very prominent, overshadowing the imagination with their claims and merits, so that not only they, but all who were associated familiarly with them, shone with a glamour which even the Almighty, it was supposed, must recognize and respect. These prominent personages and their associates were the nucleus of the immortal group. The minor heroes and saints of minor sects came next, and people without distinction formed a sort of background and filling in. The whole scene of eternity, so far at least as heaven and not the nether place was concerned in it, never struck the believer's fancy as an overwhelmingly large or inconveniently crowded stage. One may call this an aristocratic view of immortality. The immortals, I speak of heaven exclusively for an immortality of torment, need not now concern us, were always an elite, a select and manageable number. But with our own generation, an entirely new quantitative imagination has swept over our Western world. The theory of evolution now requires us to suppose a far vaster scale of times, spaces, and numbers than our forefathers ever dreamed the cosmic process to involve. Human history grows continuously out of animal history and goes back possibly even to the tertiary epoch. From this, there has emerged sensibly a democratic view instead of the old aristocratic view of immortality. For our minds, though in one sense they may have grown a little cynical, in another they have been made sympathetic by the evolutionary perspective. Bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh are these half-brutish, prehistoric brothers, girdled about with the immense darkness of this mysterious universe, even as we are, they were born and died, suffered and struggled, given over to fearful crimes and passions, plunged in the blackest ignorance, preyed upon by hideous and grotesque delusions, yet steadfastly serving the profoundest of ideals in their fixed faith that existence in any form is better than non-existence, they ever rescued triumphantly from the jaws of ever-imminent destruction the torch of life, which, thanks to them, now lights the world for us. How small indeed seem individual distinctions when we look back on these overwhelming numbers of human beings panting and straining 
under the pressure of the vital want, and how inessential in the eyes of God must be the small surplus of the individual's merit, swamped as it is in the vast ocean of the common merit of mankind, dumbly and undauntedly doing the fundamental duty and living the heroic life. We grow humble and reverent as we contemplate the prodigious spectacle. Not our differences and distinctions, we feel, no, but our common animal essence of patience under suffering and enduring effort must be what redeems us in the Deity's sight. An immense compassion and kinship fill the heart, an immortality from which these inconceivable billions of fellow strivers should be excluded becomes an irrational idea for us. That our superiority in personal refinement or in religious creed should constitute a difference between ourselves and our messmates at life's banquet, fit to entail such a consequential difference of destiny as eternal life for us, and for them torment hereafter, or death with the beasts that perish, is a notion too absurd to be considered serious. Nay, more the very beasts themselves, the wild ones at any rate, are leading the heroic life at all times, and a modern mind, expanded as some minds are by cosmic emotions, by the great evolutionist vision of the universal continuity, hesitates to draw the line even at man. If any creature lives forever, why not all? Why not the patient brutes? So that a faith in immortality, if we are to indulge it, demands of us nowadays a scale of representation so stupendous that our imagination faints before it, and our personal feelings refuse to rise up and face the task. The supposition we are swept along to is too vast, and rather than face the conclusion, we abandon the premise from which it starts. We give up our own immortality sooner than believe that all the hosts of Hottentots and Australians that have been and ever shall be should share it with us in secula secularum. Life is a good thing on a reasonably copious scale, but the very heavens themselves and the cosmic times and spaces would stand aghast, we think, at the notion of preserving eternally such ever-swelling plethora and glut of it. Having myself, as a recipient of modern scientific culture, gone through a subjective experience like this, I feel sure that it must also have been the experience of many, perhaps most, of you who listen to my words. But I have also come to see that it harbors a tremendous fallacy, and since the noting of that fallacy has set my own mind free again, I have felt that one service I might render to my listeners tonight would be to point out where it lies. It is the most obvious fallacy in the world, and the only wonder is that all the world should not see through it. It is the result of nothing but an invincible blindness from which we suffer, an insensibility to the significance of alien lives, and a conceit that would project our own incapacity into the vast cosmos and measure the wants of the absolute by our own puny needs. Our Christian ancestors dealt with the problem more easily than we do. We indeed lack sympathy, but they had a positive antipathy for those alien human creatures, and they naively supposed the deity to have antipathy too. Being as they were, heathen, our forefathers felt a certain sort of joy in thinking that their creator made them as so much more fuel for the fires of hell. Our culture has humanized us beyond that point, but we cannot yet conceive them as our comrades in the fields of heaven. 
we have, as the phrase goes, no use for them, and it oppresses us to think of their survival. Take, for instance, all the Chinamen. Which of you here, my friends, sees any fitness in their eternal perpetuation unreduced in numbers? Surely not one of you. At most, you might deem it well to keep a few chosen specimens alive to represent an interesting and peculiar variety of humanity. But as for the rest, what comes in such surpassing numbers, and what you can only imagine in this abstract, summary, collective manner, must be something of which the units, you are sure, can have no individual preciousness. God himself, you think, can have no use for them. An immortality of every separate specimen must be to him and to the universe as indigestible a load to carry as it is to you. So engulfing the whole subject in a sort of mental giddiness and nausea, you drift along, first doubting that the mass can be immortal, then losing all assurance in the immortality of your own peculiar person, precious as you all the while feel and realize the latter to be. This, I am sure, is the attitude of mind of some of you before me. But is not such an attitude due to the veriest lack and dearth of your imagination? You take these swarms of alien kinsmen as they are for you, an external picture painted on your retina, representing a crowd oppressive by its vastness and confusion. As they are for you, so you think they positively and absolutely are. I feel no call for them, you say, therefore there is no call for them. But all the while, beyond this externality which is your way of realizing them, they realize themselves with the acutest internality and with the most violent thrills of life. Tis you who are dead, stone dead and blind and senseless in your way of looking on. You open your eyes upon a scene of which you miss the whole significance. Each of these grotesque or even repulsive aliens is animated by an inner joy of living, as hotter hotter than that which you feel beating in your private breast. The sun rises and beauty beams to light his path. To miss the inner joy of him, as Stevenson says, is to miss the whole of him. Not a being of the countless throng is there whose continued life is not called for, and called for intensely by the consciousness that animates the being's form, that you neither realize nor understand nor call for it, that you have no use for it, is an absolutely irrelevant circumstance. That you have a saturation point of interest tells us nothing of the interests that absolutely are. The universe, with every living entity which her resources create, creates at the same time a call for that entity and an appetite for its continuance, creates it, if nowhere else, at least within the heart of the entity itself. It is absurd to suppose simply because our private power of sympathetic vibration with other lives gives out so soon that in the inner heart of infinite being itself there can be such a thing as plethora or glut or supersaturation. It is not as if there were a bounded room where the minds in possession had to move or make place and crowd together to accommodate new occupants. Each new mind brings its own edition of the universe of space along with it, its own room to inhabit, and these spaces never crowd each other. The space of my imagination, for example, in no way interferes with yours. The amount of possible consciousness 
seems to be governed by no law analogous to that of the so-called conservation of energy in the material world. When one man wakes up or one is born, another does not have to go to sleep or die in order to keep the consciousness of the universe at constant quantity. Professor Wundt, in fact, in his System of Philosophy, has formulated a law of the universe which he calls the law of increase of spiritual energy, and which he expressly opposes to the law of conservation of energy in physical things. There seems to be no formal limit to the positive increase of being in spiritual respects, and since the spiritual being, whenever it comes, affirms itself, expands and craves continuance, we may justly and literally say, regardless of the defects of our own private sympathy, that the supply of individual life in the universe can never possibly, however immeasurable it may become, exceed the demand. The demand for that supply is there the moment the supply itself comes into being, for the beings supplied demand their own continuance. I speak, you see, from the point of view of all the other individual beings, realizing and enjoying inwardly their own existence. If we are pantheists, we can stop there. We need then only say that through them, as through so many diversified channels of expression, the eternal spirit of the universe affirms and realizes its own infinite life. But if we are theists, we can go further without altering the result. God, as we can say, has so inexhaustible a capacity for love that his call and need is for a literally endless accumulation of created lives. He can never faint or grow weary, as we should under the increasing supply. His scale is infinite in all things. His sympathy can never know satiety or glut. I hope now that you agree with me that the tiresomeness of an overpeopled heaven is a purely subjective and illusory notion, a sign of human incapacity, a remnant of the old narrow-hearted aristocratic creed. Revere the Maker, lift thine eye up to his style and manner of the sky, and you will believe that this is indeed a democratic universe in which your paltry exclusions play no regulative part. Was your taste consulted in the peopling of the globe? How then should it be consulted as to the peopling of the vast city of God? Let us put our hand over our mouth like Job and be thankful that in our personal littleness we ourselves are here at all. The deity that suffers us we may be sure can suffer many other queer and wondrous and only half-delightful thing. For my own part, then, so far as logic goes, I am willing that every leaf that ever grew in this world's forests and rustled in the breeze should become immortal. It is purely a question of fact. Are the leaves so or not? Abstract quantity and the abstract needlessness in our eyes of so much reduplication of things, so much alike, have no connection with the subject, for bigness and number and generic similarity are only manners of our finite ways of thinking, and considered in itself and apart from our imagination, one scale of dimensions and of numbers for the universe is no more miraculous or inconceivable than another. The moment you grant to a universe the liberty to be at all, in place of the non-entity that might conceivably have reigned, the heart of being can have no exclusions akin to those which our poor little hearts set up. The inner significance of other lives exceeds all our powers of sympathy and insight. 
If we feel a significance in our own life which would lead us spontaneously to claim its perpetuity, let us be at least tolerant of like claims made by other lives, however numerous, however unideal they may seem to us to be. Let us at any rate not decide adversely on our own claim, whose ground we feel directly because we cannot decide favorably on the alien claims, whose grounds we cannot feel at all. That would be letting blindness lay down the law of sight. End of Human Immortality by William James. This is a LibriVox recording.